You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beltway Beef. This is Ashley, and today I'm joined by Clint Berry. Clint is an NCBA member from Texas. Clint, we are excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Ashley. I appreciate the chance to be here and get to visit. Great. Well, before we dive on into it, can you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and, and your involvement in the industry? Absolutely. I So like like a lot of members, I, I come from a cow-calf background. Uh, my family's been ranching in West Texas and Southern Missouri for around, about five generations. Um, and I'm, I'm a little oddball from the average person. I, I kind of cut my teeth and make my living actually marketing cattle. What I do on a daily basis is is working as an agent for sellers uh, through the video livestock markets. Uh, Spear Livestock is my home base, and and uh, so we board contract those cattle based on video sales and then take delivery on behalf of the buyers throughout the, the country. And, you know, last year, my uh, me and my rep team, we repped cattle from Idaho to North Carolina and North Dakota to Texas. So we we swing a pretty big loop as far as territory goes, and and that's that's really our day-to-day work is with the farmers and ranchers, and on the flip side of that, with the buyers, whether they're stalkers or backgrounders or or uh, you know grow yards or finish yards, uh, working with those in between, and part of that day-to-day interaction is with our livestock haulers. They're a critical component to make our industry work. So, Clint, for those listening to the podcast that may not be very familiar with the livestock hauling industry as a whole, can you just walk us through what cattle hauling is like? How many times in their life cycle do cattle get on the trailers? You know, at what point in their life cycle are they being hauled and, and then where are they going? Sure. I, you know, cattle are going to, uh, unless it's an extremely unique situation, cattle are going to get transported two to three times on a regular basis, and there's a, there's a chance they could get transported even more than that in their lifetime, depending on what they are. So let, let's let's just make it easy and, and think about a standardized operating operation and what might happen. So the cattle are born in the pasture at, at, on the family farms and ranches all across the country. They're going to raise those calves up, uh, you know, till it's time to wean them off the cows. And, it, you know, at that point, they're going to start making decisions that depending on what weight of animal we're talking about, those cattle will then be sold to a, to a buyer. So there's there's one instance of that change of ownership. Those cattle are, get on, are going to be loaded and transported. Then let's assume that that buyer is the finished feed yard. Let's just make it simple for a second. He's going to put those cattle on feed and take them to finish, which means he might have received a calf weighing 600 pounds from the rancher, and he's going to grow him up to be 1,400 pounds and sell him to the packer. When he sells him to the packer, he's going to get loaded from the feed yard and taken to the packing plant and harvested, and then that beef is going to be transported once again on trucks. But you know, so there's there's a that I mean in a in an easy typical scenario, there's two times in the life of that calf. Now it can get a lot more complicated. Let's say the calf is ends up going to a stalker operation. So that same calf comes off the ranch of origin, the the original place that it was born, and is sold to a guy that's going to kick them out and run them as 
yearlings, going to turn them out on grass and, and in essence, slow grow them on uh, in a pasture setting. So there's one transfer of ownership. Then he's going to sell them to a feed yard. There's two trans- transfer of ownership. That's two trips. Then once again, once they're finished at the feed yard, they're going to go to pack and there's three. And there can be even more than that. We haven't even talked about the fact that some of the operations transport their cattle from one location to another to move them from pasture to pasture with trucks. You know, when you're talking about, especially out west, you're talking about a home-based ranch operation on deeded ground where perhaps they calve the cows and calves out, then they load those on transports and move them into, you know, federal grazing permits and places like that. There's times those cattle get transported too. But in the life of a calf, it is not uncommon for a minimum of two, if not three or four times, to be transported in its lifetime. And and the same would hold true to adult breeding stock cows, bulls, that kind of thing. They would be transported at least two or three times in their life, including on their way to slaughter. So it's, I mean, it's not a a once-in-a-lifetime scenario. You know, this, this is just part of the industry is moving these animals from one type of operation through the supply chain to the other. So yesterday, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, or FMCSA, which it's commonly referred to, announced an extension of the exemption for the hours of service regulation for livestock haulers. And this is something that we've heard a lot about in the industry because we've actually been operating on this exemption since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic because it just became very clear that haulers needed flexibility uh, when hauling cattle. But we did it, you know, proving that we could do it safely. We could get the cattle to where they needed to go safely, even with that exemption for the hours of service regulation. So, Clint, could you just go ahead and talk about, you know, why that was important throughout the pandemic and and why that flexibility is still needed? Absolutely. You're right. You know, a a big applaud for uh, federal motor carriers for seeing and understanding the realization that that we need that exemption to operate right now. It's been critical throughout covid and, and, and past that we uh, are allowed to operate with some flexibility there because we are hauling live animals. Unlike inanimate objects or, or other products that are out on the road, we are hauling a living, breathing creature that, that whose welfare is in, you know, up to us to, to maintain. And we all know, as, as we remember in the early stages of COVID, without some added flexibility like that, we can have issues when it comes to keeping beef on the grocery store shelves and on the center of the plate. So it's it's important that we have that flexibility built in there. And you drove the nail home when you said, you know, we've been able to prove for decades, but especially during COVID when we had the exemption on our hours of service, that we can operate at one of the industry's most elite safety records. You know, we're way less than 1% of all all accidents on the, on the roads involving trucks. And so it's it, you know, it's been a proof to, and, a, and a, a big pat on the back to our drivers who have operated in a challenging time and done so very, very safely. Well, appreciate that background. And as you were talking about that, it just reminded me how important that flexibility is in haulers being able to safely get those livestock where they need to go. I'm talking about livestock animals, living, breathing creatures, you know, we can't just park on the on the 
into a asphalt parking lot in a hundred degree day and have candles, the cattle standing on a trailer. I mean, you're talking about having dead animals due to that kind of circumstance. And so we've got to have that infrastructure and that flexibility to be able to work because we're not just talking about transportation from the feed yard sector to the, the packing plant, which typically are a lot shorter hauls. Where we're really talking about is the is from the ranches, from the the, far, the family farmers and, and family ranchers that are spread throughout the country, including on the coastlines, into the feed yard with those with those what we would call calves, wean cattle, feeders coming into the feed yard for processing, and and it's not uncommon for those to be faced with hauls of eight to twenty hours, uh, you know, to be able to get from the remote parts of the country or the the parts of the country that are on the edge into the the primary feeding area of the country, which is typically the center U.S. And that's the kind of flexibility that we've got to be careful of, or otherwise we start to alienate the the farmers and ranchers that are operating that are the stewards of the land and doing all the conservation work and and running the cattle and, and, you know, sequestering carbon back for the environment and producing those calves off of those those cow-calf operations coming through that supply chain. I think you bring up some just really good points in that because you said that the lifeblood of America is in trucks, is in the hauling industry. And because we're hauling live animals, like you were saying, there are some intricacies there and some flexibility needed for our industry over other industries. And it's important that folks who are making these regulations understand why it's needed and understand why this is something that really just affects the total food supply chain in the overall food supply chain. And Clint, I really appreciate that you brought up those points of if we don't allow flexibilities like this, we'll start to see it in, you know, not having farmers and rangers in other parts of the country who are doing great things to be stewards of the environment and who are are doing those things that folks in the administration and and certain members of Congress really care about right now. So I think when we look at this issue, you did a really great job of explaining how this is a holistic issue and part of a resilient food supply chain, but also, you know, for sustainability and for the ability for farmers and ranchers to meet the needs of consumers. I would highlight the point that while the extension, uh, to the hours of service that, that we've been given to the end of November is important and critical for us to have. Long term, that's a band-aid, and we need to be looking at how to fix the issues that our drivers face and our industry is facing. And that is going to be in added hours of service for our livestock or haulers, you know, to give them the flexibility to make a 16-hour run if we need to, to get the cattle from those farther destinations into the central feeding area where those cattle are being fed so that we're not alienating the farmers and ranchers that are out there, the family farms and ranches that are supplying those calves into that feeder sector. We've got to have that kind of added flexibility, and our drivers have proven that they can operate safely under those conditions. So I, I don't think this is a big ask. If we look at the data that's there and understand why it's critical as compared to other, you know, inanimate 
products that are transported, whether it be tires or engine parts or, you know, bass boats, it wouldn't matter what we're talking about. Those, those things don't require that kind of extra care that a live animal does. What are some of the other challenges that are top of mind for you and, and other haulers across the country? And what can be done in a policy space to help alleviate some of those challenges? For me, when you're, when you're talking about these, you've got to understand that there is a large portion of cattle that lie beyond the existing uh, hours of service operation to allow a, an animal to get from the ranch of origin into the center feeding part of the country. So, so what, what am I talking about there? I, I, I'm talking about if you're raising cattle in central Florida, 11 hours of drive time on a truck is not going to get a calf from central Florida into Iowa or Kansas or the Texas panhandle. There, you physically cannot make that truck get there in that amount of time. Or if, if, if you're a rancher in the in Nevada and you're trying to get back to the front range of Colorado, or you're in Idaho trying to get back down into Nebraska, I mean, there's South Texas trying to get into maybe, you know, uh, the front range in Colorado or Nebraska feed yards. And what we wind up doing is if, if we don't have that flexibility for the family farms and ranchers and the livestock haulers to be able to haul their cattle, what we're going to wind up doing is, is alienating certain livestock producers from the competitive market. They're going to be limited in the number of buyers simply due to trucking regulations that would allow somebody to even look at their cattle as an option to be a purchaser. And that is unfair practice, in, in my opinion. You know, and those are the kind of things that we've got to be thinking of big picture-wise from a policy standpoint to allow enough flexibility to make those runs with the livestock callers we have, you know, with the secondary education we have, whether it's, you know, transport BQA training that, that nearly every driver out there is enrolled in, um, and the track record we've had, not not just through COVID and the, and the, the exemptions, from hours of service, but throughout the decades of operation we've had. I mean, our drivers have a excellent track record as compared to their peers in the trucking industry. So, you know, giving us that flexibility ensures that, that our farmers and ranchers, regardless of where they're located, can compete in a fair market, but it also gives uh, the drivers the chance to make sure that animal welfare remains at the top of the list because, remember, that the critical point here is you cannot pull that truck over and just park it anywhere. And there's not some place to just go and unload all those trucks as, as they're operating. You know, one of the fallacies is to think that there's just pin, pin space set up so many, you know, every so often down the road and you can pull up and unload the truck. Well, what about biosecurity? What about disease transmission? Even if we had those pins available, what about any injury that might happen or uh, you know, whether it was a human error and the wrong cattle got loaded on, loaded on the wrong, wrong truck or cattle got mixed together that belonged to different buyers. I mean, there's a lot of, of human error that can come into that, even if that infrastructure was available. Those are all things that we've got to understand from a policy standpoint, uh, you know, uh, the, the folks that are going to make the policy and make the legislation and, and w whether it's regulatory or legislative, to understand that that's the kind of flexibility we're talking about because we're, we're operating 
under an industry that has a lot of constraints on it, you got to make sure you understand the reality, not just the perception is what I'm saying. You know, you've got to figure that in for the welfare of the animal and the food security of our nation. Clint, we appreciate you being on the podcast today and and everything that you've shared and and all the hard work that you've done related to this and, and related to getting flexibility and regulation for livestock haulers and and helping to promote a resilient supply chain through that. We're just thankful for your membership in NCBA and and thankful for everything you do in the industry. Absolutely. I'm glad I could be here to help and and, uh, lend a little bit of experience to the issue. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.